Hello, you're all most welcome to our 14th show. I am Dylan Haskins. And I'm Lisa Hannigan. This is the very first time we've brought our live show to London, City of Angels. We have actually <laughs> recorded all of the first series here, but we did all of that uh, in, a, in a windowless, locked room. Uh, yeah, so far this series, we've been totally free range. We've been in some beautiful rooms. We were in the City Assembly House in Dublin and Kilkenny Castle. Um, and here we are in East London in Sutton House for the next three shows. This is the oldest residential building in Hackney. The National Trust run it. So thank you very much for, to them for letting us all cram in here. Sutton House was built in 1535 by a chap called Sir Ralph Sadler. And it's had a long and varied history reflecting the changing character of Hackney over just short of 500 years, really, I suppose. Um, and we are going to be digging up some of the chapters from the story of this building over the next three shows. So this is Soundings Holy Trinity. Soundings. <laughs> I've outsourced the jingle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel like you weren't, you weren't giving me enough credit no. for the many seconds that I put into writing the jingles every week, so. Yeah. I feel like we, we had reached, we've been doing a, Lisa always remembers to do a jingle about two minutes before we go to record each show. And I feel like, just, just saying, I think we're at the level I can say this, I feel like we'd reached a kind of a creative impasse with the, um, with the jingles <laughs> at the point we got to. But so, someone taken, can only be expected to write so many jingles. So. <laughs> well, thank you for improving the jingle about a million percent. <laughs> Uh, this is a good opportunity to introduce our musical guests. Uh, today we have Alfie and Harry Hudson-Taylor from the band Hudson-Taylor. They've just released their debut record, Singing for Strangers, and it's out worldwide. And they're about to embark on a tour, so check out their website. What's your website? HudsonTaylorMusic.com. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and we're also joined by Gabrielle Applin, who... Gabrielle has one of the most beautiful voices I've ever heard. And I'm keeping my simmering jealousy under wraps because I'm a professional for the duration of the podcast um, and Gabrielle's first record English Rain came out in 2013 and are you nearly finished your second one? I finished it this week actually it's all Whoa. done as of yesterday well, so. welcome congratulations uh, Giles Dooley is a documentary photographer and photojournalist whose work focuses on the humanitarian effect and lasting legacy of war, which he himself experienced firsthand when, uh, in the course of his work in Afghanistan in 2011, he stepped on an improvised explosive device and lost three limbs. Giles was recently, he's just, was in the Lebanon making a, a film for Channel 4's Unreported World series about the plight of Syrian refugees and particularly disabled Syrian refugees um, and showing the kind of conditions that they're living in over there. He is also, according to his surgeon, as tough as old boots. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Giles Dooley. Giles, you're just back from quite a long trip. Yeah, I think I just worked out it was 15 flights in the last two months. So it was San Francisco, Hong Kong, uh, Cambodia, like Vietnam. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we were raving the whole way. <laughs> um, then Gaza, and, well, Israel and then Gaza. Um, which is always an experience getting from Israel to Gaza. And what were you doing on, the, on those travels? Um, so I'm doing a project called Legacy of War, which is looking at post-conflict communities 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years after war. Communities are still affected. You know, a peace treaty doesn't mean the end of people's suffering. And that's really what I'm trying to tell with the story. Quite significantly, you did just come back into London. You have been in 
all sorts of conflict zones. Um, you're walking up the street in London and someone on quite pe spectacular fashion stole your phone. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've just literally, I've got back from Gaza, I've been doing security in all these different places and yeah, I come back to my lovely London and within a few hours of being in London, my phone's nicked. I'm like, I'm home. <laughs> it, was, it was someone on a moped. It was someone on a moped and I was actually sitting in a cafe on the phone talking to somebody and then they just came, whacked the phone and grabbed it. Luckily they didn't hit anybody, but <laughs> it's good to be back. Our next guest is the actress, comedy writer and Hackney local Sharon Horgan. Sharon is responsible for two of the funniest sitcoms um, of the last few years, uh, the award-winning Pulling and... Catastrophe, which he co-wrote with uh, Rob Delaney, is like proper tea out the nose, funny, amazing. Um, and Sharon's just been commissioned to write a sitcom for HBO called Divorce, in which she will star alongside Sarah Jessica Parker. That I'm not starring in it. Are you I'm not? No. <laughs> I'm just writing for her. Is that, is that better or...? or? Um, uh, yeah, yeah, I think it is for a change. I'd say it's pretty yeah. stressful, as is, which is for doing the <laughs> Yeah, it is. You know, it's um, she's probably the most famous person I've you know worked with, and it's fun, but a bit of stress comes with that. No pressure, no pressure. Um, and also, apparently, Sharon knows how to pluck a turkey, so you pretty much you can do, you can pretty much do everything. Well, I can yeah, I can pluck turkeys and write sitcoms. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's, they're, 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 that's a wide but spectrum that's of activities. Pretty much it. I'm a, I'm a pretty good. Are you endorsed for both of those things on LinkedIn? Uh, <laughs> not on fucking LinkedIn. <laughs> uh, but no, I'm I'm a really good turkey plucker. I mean, I haven't done it for a while, but you know, if you were to put one in front of me now, I'd give it a good go. Well, it's funny you should say that. <laughs> Well, I think you're, you're pretty much the Irish Lady Batman, so, you know. <laughs> so Sharon Horgan. <laughs> uh, you were born, you, you sound yes. Irish, but you were born in Hackney. Yeah, yeah, I was. I sound Irish because I am actually Irish. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but my, um, my parents were here for a short time. They had a, a pub um, in Bow, and I was born in Hackney Hospital. I spent um, the first four years of my life here. So you are probably, you have, you can claim to be the most local out of probably all, all of us sitting on the stage. Yeah, anyway. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> Our final guest is the TV and radio broadcaster, singer, chef, restaurant owner, um, former post-punk Post I guess, punk. I guess something punk, something around then. Uh, <laughs> so Andrea, it was a while ago, you know. Andre Oliver runs Sugar Shack, which is uh, just down the road from us, actually, here in, um, in Sutton House. And Lisa and I can attest to the deliciousness of the food there <laughs> when we, we tried it out last week. Um, Andre is a former member of the 80s post-punk band Rip, Rig and Panic. <coughs> and she has presented countless TV shows over the years for BBC and Channel 4 including uh, Nina and, and Nena. Nena, let me get this right, because you okay. were saying the other day, we were talking and you were saying Nena, and I was looking at you with my eyes raised, because I always thought it was Nina Cherry. No. No, wrong. <laughs> it's Nana Cherry. It's Nana Cherry. <laughs> Nena. It's, it's actually Nene. N-E-N-E-H. Nena. Nena. Nene. Okay. Ne, ne. Will I say it again and we can do <laughs> Two syllables, Dylan. Come on now. <laughs> but, but in her career, she was called Nina Cherry, right? No, just everybody says it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and I think she's kind of given up. Do you know what I mean? She just goes, you know, hi. 
Some people call me Anthea all the time and I can't be bothered, so I just say hi. How about I just say it again and we edit that whole bit out? Go on. No, I think you should leave it in. Try it again. No, I won't try and say it again. I'll just get it wrong. And please welcome Andrea Oliver. Is it true, according to Wikipedia, you once hosted a show with iced tea? I did host it, yeah, a, a long time ago. Probably around the same time this house was built. <laughs> uh, I did, I did have a, We had a show on Channel 4 called Badass TV. Wow. And the most memorable thing for me, really, was his ponytail. He had this really high-maintenance ponytail that required tonging and blow-drying and had a little ribbon. I was like, really? Big pimping. Big. <laughs> He's a nice guy, though. We had fun. He was lovely. He was scared of his wife. I was scared of his wife. She was nuts. But, uh, yeah, it was good. It was a laugh. Awesome. It was a long time ago, seriously. Yeah, no, it was great fun to do something like that. You know, the only reason they, I, I did that with him was because everybody else was too scared to argue with him. It was ridiculous. But he was a sweetheart. That's how I got the gig. How did you get the kind of... Uh, you have to get a, not, a, not a respect with someone, but a point where... You can, kind of, you can talk to them in a way that they're going to listen to what you have to say. How did you reach that point with them? I, I just, I'm just, that's just how I am. That's you. <laughs> just how I am with any of Because, you know, you, I think I learned at a very early age, you have to stand in your own shoes and inhabit your own bit of space. Otherwise, people will stand on your head, you know. So, so he's only, he's a rapper, you know, whatever. It doesn't really matter, does it? <laughs> just another guy with a job, you know. I don't, I don't get... It's freaked out that easily. Some people occasionally, but not generally. I'm fairly self-possessed. Who's the scariest person you ever have met? The scare Maya Angelou. I was scared of her. I was really scared of her. <laughs> Only because she's such a hero of mine, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like just her writing and just, you know, her philosophy and all the things she'd done. I was really intimidated. But she was such a beautiful woman. She was incredibly gracious and I kind of said, I went to her house to interview her for this project that we were doing. And uh, she said, I'm Dr. Angelo. And I said, hi, I'm Andrew. And she went, and your surname? And I said, uh, Oliver. And she went, Miss Oliver, pleasure. And I felt really silly, <laughs> like really quickly. But then she went very quickly, went out of her way to make me feel really comfortable. And then she invited us back to her house for dinner. And we had a lovely dinner with her. And we sat in her back garden. And she told us stories about Chicadas and... She was like, that's Quincy's little house, like Quincy Jones's little cottage down the back of her garden. And she was just this... I was like, so happy. <laughs> <laughs> Drinking wine, listening to Maya Angelou tell me stories. I was a very happy chick, seriously. <laughs> Beautiful. Amazing. Uh, so, Sounding's Holy Trinity is a show of three parts. Um, we have stories and songs to alarm and to humour, and then we're going to start off with stories of inspiration. Jaws, would you like to... Start us off? Yeah, I was waiting for you to tell three things so I could kind of get going. <laughs> I thought I'd get a little gap before. Um, inspiration. Um, inspiration. I, I just got back from, from Gaza and from uh, Northern Ireland. And the thing that struck me for both of those places was barriers, was walls and was divides. And Gaza especially, um, I'm not going to talk about the rights and wrongs of what happens there. But just the process of, of getting out of Gaza, leaving Gaza, is such a process. You have to have a special pass. Most people can't get that. I had the special pass, and you get there, and it's like going through a maximum security prison. There are walls, there are uh, watchtowers with guys with guns. Um, you have to walk pretty much a kilometer of, of no man's land to even get to the entrance. You then go through all these security parts. 
Um, and there's no people there. Everything is done through speakers. And you can see cameras watching you and little bits watching you. And it's the most intimidating thing you could imagine. Um, and then, you know, I kind of messed up the whole security system with my legs because my prosthetic legs set off every alarm going. So they, they sent me to this sort of separate room, which is like a, a bunker. It's literally like this concrete little room because I think they think, you know, you've got a bomb inside you. So you go and sit in there and the door's all locked behind you. And you're sat there and, and somebody speaks and they're like, take your legs off. I'm like, okay, take my legs off. And there's a little x-ray machine and I put them through there and I'm sitting there going... <laughs> And nothing happened, and I'm just in my pants by this stage. And then a guy comes in with a machine gun and his assistant, and they're kind of coming in with them, and they're saying, put the legs on the tray, and I put the legs on the tray. And they actually point the gun at the legs, which I found kind of weird. <laughs> now, bearing in mind the legs had just gone through an X-ray machine, which obviously was okay, I can only assume the legs were acting suspiciously. Because <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't seem bothered by me. They're kind of looking at these legs. One guy pointed the gun, the other guy takes the tray, and then they took him off. I can only assume for questioning. Um, I don't know what they did with them. But they, they kept them for sort of half an hour. I'm just sat there in my pants just going... And I've got to be honest, I mean, sometimes when I take my legs off and they're sat in the corner of the room, they do look weirdly at me. So I, I was all with the Israelis for doing it. I think it was a very sensible thing to do to question my legs. So anyway, after that, they bring them back. Then you go through another area. And it goes on for about seven hours just to get out. That is what the barrier is between Gaza and Israel. And as I say, whether you're looking at the rights or the wrongs, but that is the fear that people have of both sides. That is the most physical divide you could ever imagine between two groups of people. And it horrified me and incredibly upset me. And I went from there um, to Derry, stroke London Derry, stroke City, um, and I was doing a peace-building exercise. And I remember as a child seeing pictures of Derry and seeing divides and seeing walls and seeing police checkpoints. And talking to people from there, that's what it's all about. And I sat in a room, and I sat in a room with people who were terrorists on both sides. And to see a former loyalist and to see a former IRA stand up and say, I'm a grandfather, I'm a father, I was a terrorist. And then sit and talk and have cups of tea together. That inspired me that walls can come down. And so when I think of Gaza, it seems so impossible. But I do believe, and I have to believe, that those walls can come down. Mm. Have you been anywhere where you've seen those walls coming down pretty effectively? I mean, it's, it's still, you would think we would be quite far on with that process in, in Northern Ireland. Obviously, Northern Ireland is always referenced in terms of peace process elsewhere in the world, but obviously every situation is usually entirely complicated and entirely different. But I think that's the thing, is, is when, you, when you see these situations, like in, in, with Gaza and Israel, it seems impossible to ever have hope. And actually, the conference I did in, in Derry was called Hope Beyond Hurt. And it's the idea that you can move beyond these things. And the trouble is, you see something like Gaza and Israel, and people just go, it's impossible, they'll never work it out, there'll never be an answer. And all I would say is that there are places where they have found those answers. In Rwanda, the Hutu and the Tutsi are living back together. I was in Cambodia, where 25% of the population was killed by the Khmer Rouge, and those communities are back together. So you just have to keep believing in that hope and believe that those barriers can come down. Mm. Awesome. Sharon. Oh, <laughs> I, uh, I haven't got a good story like that. This is all just about me. Because you told me that this was going to be a laid-back evening of chat this and music. 
I thought I'd What's be like. laid back about I thought this? I'd be banging a bar on and rolling it in some joints or something. So, um, so I, I think I take rejection and failure quite badly. And um, I left Ireland because I didn't get into a drama studies course um, in Trinity College. Um, I didn't get accepted, and, and so I didn't, you know, try somewhere else or have another go. I just thought, screw you, Ireland. I'm going to go to London and, uh, and do it over there, because I thought it'd be easier, you know, to, to fail there. Problem was, <laughs> I got to London, and I applied for um, the three top drama schools. I applied for RADA and Lambda and Central, and I didn't get into any of those either. It's terrible. So uh, instead of picking myself up and, and dusting myself off, I, uh, I just thought, I'm just going to hang around for as many years as possible as it takes for someone to discover me. And uh, so I did what any budding actress would do, and I got a job in a job centre. And uh, I worked there five days a week, and then I sold uh, power showers uh, <laughs> at, at the weekend. The power shower thing w was, was the worst bit, because, I mean, you have to talk your way into people's homes, you got to get them to hand over their bank details to you. You feel like they're, you're tricking them. Like, I'd find myself sitting in, in, in the sitting rooms of old people, drinking tea and, and eating biscuits, and I'd realise about half an hour in that they had no intention of buying a parish hour off me. <laughs> they were just using me for company. And, uh, and I had no patience for that. But um, I, must have, I must have loved the job centre because I stayed there for six and a half years. Wow. I stayed there for six years... And then another half a year. <laughs> so um, all those years after coming to London and, I, and I'd achieved um, nothing, I'd done very little. I'd, I'd, I'd done a couple of plays above a, a couple of pubs. I'd, I'd done a Punch and Judy show to get my equity card. I did a part-time drama course in the evening, but really basically nothing. And I started making up excuses to not go back to Ireland because I didn't want anyone to see what a terrible failure I'd become. And in the meantime, my brother had got a job playing rugby for fucking Ireland. <laughs> so I was like, oh, well, great. I'm really glad it's all working out for you. <laughs> so uh, anyway, I was kind of, you know, losing my, um, losing my confidence in myself and, and my sort of will to follow my dream. And uh, one morning at, at the job centre, um, the new manager came in. <laughs> He tells me the news that um, someone had taken a shit out the front of the building. <laughs> so, so I was like, okay, well, maybe, you know, maybe this is just morning chat or, you know, it's a bit of an anecdote. So I was like, oh, oh, Jesus, that's, you know, where, whereabouts? Um, are, you know, are you sure it's a human shit because how do you know? And, and it turns out he knew because someone had, had, had seen a man squatting at the front of the building actually taking it. Nice. So uh, anyway, it became clear to me that he wasn't just shooting the breeze. He wanted me to, to go outside and, and clean it up. And, um, and I was like, there's a lot of other people working here. Um, why, are, why are you asking me? It's not really my job description. I was more sort of administrative, you know, <laughs> a little bit of outreach work. But anyway, I found myself saying, oh, okay. And uh, so I went and I got a bucket of hot water and I don't know, a broom. And um, I went outside and sure enough, there, there was a massive um, turd out the, the front entrance of the job centre and um, someone was going to have to clean it up. 
but um, I was fucked if it was going to be me. <laughs> so um, I, I went back inside and I, ha I handed in my notice and um, I left my job. And, and I'd, I'd, know, I'd nowhere to go, I'd, you know, nothing lined up. And uh, at the same time, my, my, my flatmate at the time had gone travelling around the world for a year and uh, it was another incentive to leave the job centre because just the thought of her coming back and saying, so, you know, what's new with you? And, and me going... Oh, what's new with me? I'm, st I'm still in the job centre. So I, um, I applied for an English degree and I took um, creative writing as my, you know, um, module and I discovered my true love, which is telling stories, not anecdotes, because this is horrific. And, uh, <laughs> and um, so, yeah, so that's the kind of um, moral of my story uh, <laughs> that um, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's as, as hard as rejection and failure is, it's harder to spend your time being scared of doing the thing you want to do. And also, never clean up a human shit unless A, <laughs> it's your job, or um, B, someone you love has done it, in which case it's fine. <laughs> I love that a, that a turd was the catalyst for this life-changing moment. <laughs> was there, do you, do you wonder about, you know, having, having written um, some wonderful series, which seem to be drawing on your different experiences that you've had at different times in your life, do you ever wonder what you might have written in your 20s had, you, had someone shitted on the doorstep earlier? <laughs> I, I genuinely think it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me was, um, you know just messing about for so long because I think everything I've written has been, um, well, certainly the thing that got me started, which was pulling, which was about, you know, um, kind of not using your life and your time in, in, in the best possible way. I think I wouldn't have been able to write that. And, and actually, you know, you, you, you grow, don't you, as, a, as an artist or a writer, and, and I, I'm sure I would have got to it eventually. But I'm glad I have so many terrible, terrible stories <laughs> to tell, otherwise it wouldn't be so interesting. I suppose it's the, it's the opposite to, you know, when people are writing, writing an album and they write an album about their experience on the streets and then they get famous yeah. and they write about they just write about how much money they have. Like, yeah, yeah. And, and it gets sucky, whereas you've done it the other way around, yeah. which hopefully has a bit more longevity in it. I know, and I, I like to keep having um, hard times, you know, I like to keep things <laughs> tricky for myself, you know, relationship-wise and everything, so, so I can continue to do that. Do Who wants to be happy? <laughs> do you think you'll go back on, look back on some of your 20s years in stuff you might write in the future as well? No. No. <laughs> no, it would be depressing, I think, you know. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> As in 20s are depressing? <laughs> well, you know, looking, looking back, yeah. you know, I can't even look at photos of myself from that time or, you know, friends. It kind of doesn't, doesn't it make you sad. I think it, everyone was so beautiful then. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Andrea? Oh, hi. Uh, actually, the final part of what I'm about to talk about kind of reflects a little bit what you're saying. It doesn't, it's not going to sound like it, but we'll get there <laughs> in the end. So I've got this friend. He's my ex-boyfriend, actually. 
He's a pretty amazing guy. Uh, his name's Nick Redding, and he's an, he's an actor. He's an actor from Chiswick. Um, he used to be in The Bill. He did lots. He was like a jobbing, doing-all-right TV actor, but he was bored out of his mind. And we have another friend who started an organisation called the Red Hot and Blue Organisation, which was one of the first HIV-AIDS charities that started in the country around the same time as the Terence Higgins Trust. Her name's Lee Blake. She was going to L.A. to do some work, and she said to Nick, do you want to come? Well, Nick was still there, going in L.A. anyway. So they met up at this dinner party in L.A., and he met a doctor called Dr. Shafiq, who was a Kenyan doctor. And the doctor was going back to Kenya to build a hospital to, for people with HIV and living with HIV and AIDS. And uh, he, he said to Nick, you know, I'm looking for people to come and, and work with me, help me build this hospital. And Nick said, I think I'm going to go a bit pissed, you know, at dinner party. Sounds amazing, sounds inspiring, I'm going to go. But then he did call him back and he did go. Went to Kenya with Dr Shafiq. They built this hospital. He met an extraordinary array of people. And when he was there, it became really clear to him that... One of the main problems uh, with HIV and AIDS education in Kenya was that people just had no information. And the best way and the most effective way in Kenya for people to disseminate information and, and for people to really educate themselves was through theatre and through music. Because uh, in Africa, you know, it's not like here in the same way that it's, you know, going to the theatre is special. It's like storytelling is an innate part of life. People just have a different attitude towards it. Uh, so, and he met quite a lot of young directors and actors who are also helping build the hospital. And they started a little theatre company, literally about six of them. They wrote a little play. And he rode around this place called Khalifi Creek, just outside Mombasa. He rode around on his bike, sticking little posters on the trees, come see our play, started this little theatre company. A few people came, they did another play, a few more people came. This went on, I guess they've done it now. It must be, I guess it's 12 years or something that he's been doing. He's now got three theatre companies that tour up and down Kenya. They do uh, HIV and AIDS counselling. They do one-on-one uh, aftercare. They do testing. They do sex education. They've got they have tripled the instance of people just going to get tested because there was a massive stigma just even around getting tested because people thought if you were getting tested then there was something really wrong with you and you'd become ostracised. So they've made it cool to be part of this theatre company, these theatre companies they call Sponsored Arts for Education and he's now working with the Maasai up in the hills and they are creating new ways for women to pass through a, a, a sort of maturity ritual so to get away from female genital mutilation so he's working with midwives and working with nurses up with the Maasai and the impact that the work they do that's had on Kenyan communities is just massive. I mean, he's sort of having huge meetings with Desmond Tutu and Bill Clinton, and they're cha- he's changing the world, changing the world around him. He's changing the way that people live around him, but it's really from his heart, and it's really just something that started really like a you know tiny little acorn, but it really did start in such a small way. And to me, it's such a lesson to live the way that your spirit dictates you know, you, and that's what I mean by that we come round to, to, to the point of your story again. It's just the things that you feel, the things that you dream, the things that you envision, you can do it. You can reach for it. You just have to take the first tiny little step. And to me, that's inspiring and amazing and magnificent. And it can be because you're helping people with something as monumental as HIV and AIDS, or it can be 
you know, writing something beautiful that means something to you. It can be cooking something amazing. For me, I've started this restaurant. I've taught myself how to be a chef. And, you know, that's no mean feat, actually. And chefs, it's a really blokey, weird, oppressive, bullying kind of funny world. And fuck them, I just do it. Just did it because I wanted to fucking do it. Don't care, that's how I want to do it. And you just have to have your vision and hold it strong and true and believe in your own heart. The whole iced tea thing is starting to make a bit more yeah, sense yeah, now yeah. as well. Fuck him too. <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. I liked him. Honest, I did. So I, that's just what I believe. And, mm. and I find Nick's story really inspiring and extraordinary. They've got this amazing coach. He's best friends with Daniel Craig. Daniel bought them a coach. And the coach turns into a, a stage. So they adapted the whole coach. You, you, you literally flip up the bottom and the whole stage rolls out the top. They open the top, lights come out and they open the side, the speakers pop out the edge. So they just take this, this coach up and down the country. It's just amazing and extraordinary and uplifting and yay. <laughs> yay for stage. I love how somebody with such a classic, sort of flaky job as actor, no offence, you know, as, you know, musicians, it's yeah, also yeah. a flaky job. I just love how somebody with a classic flaky job made such an incredible difference, you know, so you, you, you wouldn't think that with, with your job, you know, you, you wouldn't feel as useful, like, as somebody yeah. in Medicine Sans Frontier or a photographer or yeah. something, you know, whereas Absolutely. it's amazing that, you know. So you can take your skill, the thing that you have, and and make and and turn it and change it and expand on it and you know think about it in so many different ways. There's a and on the music side of it, actually, it's interesting you say that. There's there's a Dutch experimental punk band who've been going since the 70s. I saw an email today. They're still going. They're still releasing stuff called the X. And they did a tour in Africa, but it was Chumba Wumba who were kind of seen as, when they did that I Get Knocked Down single, they were seen as selling out from the underground punk scene that they'd been a part of up to that point when they created such a banger of a tune. But on the back of all the money they made on that, they bought a back line of equipment. Um, and I'm not sure whereabouts it was, but it was always left in Africa for bands to tour to start off. They would go to where the gear was and then they do, they do the tour because logistics are, are so hard for bands to get around in, in there as well. So... It's kind of a similar thing, but it takes, it takes a bit of investment and people looking, looking and over. And just thought. You know what I mean? It's a lot, often it's the tiny things. Like for Nick, for Safe to put on a show, it's only about £250. Mm. And that pays for everything. It pays for the actors, it pays for the infrastructure, the whole thing, you know, so... It's the like, groundwork must be a big part of it as well. Meeting people there before you do it. I remember yeah. them saying that about the tour. They kind of did a tour before the tour yeah. to go and meet the kind of key people in each town so that they could arrange they to come there. They do this amazing thing before the shows. I wish I could remember what it was called, where they go out with the drums and dance through the town or the village and everybody comes out and joins in and then it takes you back to the square where the show's going to be. I went with them. It was so fun. Mm. Perfect. <laughs> Brilliant. So now we're going to have a song from you guys, please. Uh, do you want to explain why, why, what is your song of inspiration? So we are two different bands, myself and my brother Alfie are called Hudson Taylor and this is Gabrielle Applin and uh, we sort of largely play singer-songwriter folk music and uh, the song that we're going to play is a song that has inspired us quite a lot. It's by Crosby, Stills and Nash and I can imagine they probably played this song in venues very similar to this over the years in acoustic environments where they don't use any micro, any amplification or things. So it's, it's, really, it's really lovely for us to get to sit in a lovely old hall like this and, and play a tribute to one of our favourite acts. 
So yeah, let's do it. years ago I put all my stuff in, into storage because I was going to be going away traveling a lot taking photographs and then there was a kind of bit of a hiccup when I got blown up which meant that for the next four years as well I didn't have anywhere to live so for the first time uh, in about a week's time I'm getting all my things out of storage and honestly the thing I've missed most are my records so that's what I've been thinking about so much when I've been in Gaza when I've been in, in Derry everywhere it's just my records and Crosby Stills Nash Young the various combinations of yeah. such are some of those records that I most want to hear. So hearing yes. that was, was, was really special. Sorry, this is a really personal little just <laughs> aside. Now we, we move on to our next section, which is Stories to Alarm. Sutton House was built in Tudor times when Hackney was, believe it or not, a country village on the outskirts of London with green fields and clean air. Um, <laughs> not much has changed. Uh, for anyone who's seen the Tudors, you know that Henry VIII was the most alarming king of all. And his right-hand man was a chap called Thomas Cromwell. And Thomas Cromwell's protege was Ralph Sadler, who built this house. When Cromwell fell from royal favour, he was sent to the Tower of London, and Sadler was sent with him. And for anyone unfamiliar with English history, the Tower of London is not where you want to be in an English history book. But Sadler was canny enough to talk his way out of it, and he, he kind of distanced himself from his former master, and he was released. Like 
I feel like we should do a little spoiler alert in here just because it, there's a lot of people listening and, and here presumably who, like me, uh, are waiting for the third installment of Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall trilogy by <laughs> Thomas Cromwell. <laughs> well, he totally dies. <laughs> <laughs> As I found out of my wandering around the house yesterday. So. <laughs> well, un- unlike Thomas Cromwell, Ralph Sadler managed to hold on to his head under four Tudor monarchs, which is no mean feat. So he was a survivor, much like the house that he built. Going to come to you first, Sharon. Okay. Can you give us your alarming story? So on the 27th of November 2001, the musician and singer-songwriter Mick Christopher, who was my good pal and fellow messer, passed away. And we'd been friends for a long time, and we'd been lovers for a short time. And somehow we managed to stay pals and not bullshit pretend pals. And anyone who's been in a relationship with someone and managed to stay friends with them knows that you can only do that if you really, truly love that person and if it was the friendship that mattered to begin with. So we managed to stay in touch despite living in different countries and other lovers coming along and all that kind of thing. And um, anyway, one day in um, mid-November, he came to visit me in my tiny little basement flat in Stockwell. And he just turned up, no warning, like no calling ahead. And I was like, you asshole. What, what if I hadn't have been here? And he said, well, you were. And I went, yeah, but I might not have been. And he said, well, you, you are. So um, that went on for a while, but we got over it and um, we spent the weekend together. And he was um, supporting the Waterboys at um, Brixton Academy. And it was a dream come true for him because he was Waterboys nut. So I went along and watched him on this big stage just um, performing beautifully. I just started making comedy and I showed him these stupid sketches that um, I've been filming and he laughed, luckily, and congratulated me on getting my shit together. And we just hung out and ate and, and talked and, and walked and, and, and told each other how proud we were that we'd sort of stayed in touch and, and stayed friends. And, and then he, the next morning he left um, to go on tour around Europe with the Waterboys and, and that was the last time I ever saw him because after a gig one night in Amsterdam... He went out for a walk and he tripped over and he fell down some steps and he uh, knocked his head and fell into a coma and he never woke up. So I think the reason why I'm telling you this is, um, first of all, to educate you on the music of Mick Christopher because it would be great if everyone went home tonight and went on iTunes and downloaded one of his beautiful songs. But um, also I'm telling you this because I think... It's so easy not to stay in touch with people. You know, we're so busy and sometimes there's oceans between us. And I just think, you know, if you really love someone and they're important to you, just make the effort. Just go and see them. Call them up. Turn up on their doorstep. Don't turn up on their doorstep. It's, you know, they might not be there. and (laughs) They could have plans and it's annoying. But just stay in touch because if Mick and I hadn't managed to do that, we wouldn't have had such a glorious goodbye. And for that, I'm really grateful. That's my story. <laughs> um, I, I was friends with Mick as well, and um, myself and Sharon were talking uh, talking about it earlier, and, and it, 
I remember I was only a scrap. I was only 20 and mid-messer mode. Absolutely didn't know what I was at. But yeah, Mick was kind of always messer mode. So it was, you know, it was great. He was always great fun. Um, when I found out about his accident, it was a total... I, I remember it didn't occur to me at all that, that, that he would die, you know, in that nothing, luckily for me, nothing bad, really bad had ever happened. And I didn't really... I didn't entertain the possibility that anything bad sort of could happen. And I remember him dying was such an important sort of turning, but it was such a loss of innocence, realising that that um, awful things can happen at any time. And actually, you're right, you know, just, just you have to... I mean, it sounds so cheesy, but you do have to tell people how you feel about them all the time, you know. But... He was great. He's still the coolest person I ever met. You know? So the coolest person <laughs> I could ever meet. Yeah, his record um, is called Skylarking. Uh, it was finished by his friends after his death. Um, he had sort of, he'd d- done lots of recording, but he hadn't done, like, back in vocals. Or, and a lot of the recordings weren't necessarily the, you know, the definitive one that he probably wanted. But all of his friends came together for, for a few months and, and finished it the way they thought he wanted it to be finished and dug out the artwork that he'd sort of hidden in a book to you know that he said he wanted for the cover so it's yeah it's called Skylarking by Mick Christopher this song is called Kids On How come your sister's in drag where are the clothes that she has well, I seen her off late I think she put on some weight like a man How come that boy's not like me? What color me does he see? Well, they say that he's blue I think he colors my room when he comes How come we both go to school on different sides of the street? How come that girl that I knew, sometimes she don't look so good? Well, her mom says it's flu, but she wears coats in the gym class at school. Tell her I wanna be friends with you Will you be friendly to me? How come your sister's in drag? How come some people get mad? Cause either red, green or blue I think they color my room when they come The red, green, or blue I think they brighten my room when they come When they come When they come 
Giles, as somebody who is lucky to be alive, and you've, in the course of your work, you've no doubt seen many people taken well before their time as well. You must have had to think about that an awful lot. Yeah, I mean, for me, I mean, I, I almost died in 2011 when I was, was blown up. Um, and, you know, actually, I, increasingly I realised how many positive things have come out of that experience. I spent 46 days in intensive care, about 37 operations in the first year. Um, you know, it was touch and go. My family was called in twice to say their, their goodbyes. Um, but as I say, weirdly, you know, I'm the happiest I've been in my life, and, and a lot of great positives have come out. And one is, I would say, I, I got about as close as to your own funeral as you ever want to get. And what I mean by that is, is you know, we've all experienced it where people we, we care about pass away, and you kind of go, God, why didn't I get in contact with them? Or you, you'd forgot about them, something at school, and you're like, I really like them, and I lost contact. And that's what happened to me, is people from all uh, phases of my life felt they'd almost lost me. And so suddenly reached out to say, hey, you know, let's get in contact. I mean, some of them I wish they hadn't got in contact. <laughs> I have to say, there's some you're kind of going, you know, there was a reason why we haven't spoken for a while. <laughs> Just saying. But no, but in seriousness, there were like, you know, these, these great relationships that have come back to me. Because we, we all do it. We go like, you know, I think of so-and-so, they're oh, a really good friend, really great friend. And you're like, when did I speak to me? Like two years ago, three years ago? Oh, but they're a really great friend and they'll just always be there and, and they won't always be there. And, and so I, I had it come to me. I had these amazing relationships return to me and they, they're more treasure than ever. So yeah, absolutely what you're saying. You know, if there's somebody, it's, it's like a BT ad, isn't it? It's like if there's somebody you're thinking about tonight, go home, call them. Andrea. Well, I lost my brother when I was 25. And he had sickle cell anemia and he died really out of the blue. It's the same thing when you're young. You just... But he was an extraordinary bass player. We were all in the same band. He was the bass player in Rip Ring and Panic. When we were young, we toured the world together. We did amazing things together as siblings. Do you know what I mean? You guys are making music together. It's a brilliant, amazing gift to have that with one... You know, with your family, it's an incredible thing to have. And he, he lived more in 27 years than some people live... You know, some people live to their 90 and nobody notices when they die. When my brother died, the whole of... Like West London stopped. It was like there was a royal death. You know what I mean? There was people in the streets. There was outside the crematorium. There were like people four or five deep outside on that you couldn't fit people in. He had such an impact in the world, you know. And I'm really proud of the way that he lived. He drove me mad at the time, obviously, my brother. <laughs> but uh, I'm really proud of him and us, and happy that we. Was had that him. the brother that was in the the car crash? Yes. And that's how you came to meet. That's how Nana. we met. That's exactly all. You can't. You good with your memory? We, and and uh, pronunciation of Nana. <laughs> yeah, not so great with pronunciation. <laughs> uh, yeah, he had a car crash. Him in Cambridge Circus. Him and Gareth, who was one of the other guys in the band. He was like the leader of our band. Had the drunk and driving, and uh, had a car crash in Cambridge Circus. And when I went to see him at the hospital, Nana was there, and he kept telling me about this. He was like, "You've got to meet." My friend, this girl, she's amazing. And she was like, you've got to meet my sister, she'll plait your hair. You know, friendships are like love affairs for me. All my, you know, I have, you know, my lovers and then I have my friends who are also, it's another love affair. You know, we fell in love when we met each other, Nana and I, you know, within 10 minutes. This was when you could smoke a fag in a hospital hallway. <laughs> Check that out. I don't even smoke. But we went out in the hallway and had a fag, because we just did, and we came back in and we were like, uh, oh, we're going to sing together. And they were all like, yeah, uh, whatever, girls. And, you know, three months later, we were on the road together. And 
That's not my story. Oh, is it not? Oh, that's... <laughs> was that supposed to be my story? I thought it was the end of the other story. Well, that's fine. This is okay. No. Yeah. We're just I've having got a chat. I've got so many stories. <laughs> so, uh, should I tell you my story? Yes, please. Okay. It's not really a story. It's more of an experience. I have a cousin called Jerry, who's an extraordinary piano player, just amazing. We also made lots of music together when we were young. And uh, he's classically trained... And again, he got, you know, bored of the industry and all of the rest of it and decided he was going to train to be a music therapist. And he went off and did the Nordoff Robbins uh, training. Uh, it's quite interesting, music therapy, because it comes from a classical music tradition. And he, he wrote an extraordinary thesis, actually, on grooveology, because his, his uh, point of view was that if you're using music as medicine, you're using music as a, a channel for healing, then to discount all other ways of making music seems a little odd. And it kind of does, doesn't it? It's a sort of weird thing. And, and, and also, he's like, if you're, if you're taking out groove, then you're, you're missing out the human part of music, the, the slide, the bit that's not on the one, the bit that's not regimented and already thought about. It's the, it's the unknown. It's that little variable. So surely that must be really powerful if you're working with people and their physicality and, and healing. Anyway, so he, he did this whole course, and I, I thought that was fascinating, that whole groovology thing. Um, and then he started doing... He worked at this hospice called St Christmas, who all the people in this hospice were in palliative care, so everybody there's dying, and they know they're dying. Young people, up people in the middle, older people, but there's a, there's a pall in the air because everybody knows that they're dying. But actually, it was also quite a place of a lot of light and laughter as well. He was doing uh, classes with people, where they would make music together and then he would just elicit little stories from them, little bits of little sentences, just sort of word association games. And he would put it all together as poetry. And then he used to get me to... He asked me to come in to read back the words that the people had come up with that he had put together. What I didn't expect was that people would be so struck by their own stories. And I realised that, you know, working in the ways that I work and the people around me, a lot of the time, we're, we're always telling our own stories, constantly banging on about ourselves in, in one way or another, and that's our sort of source material or whatever. And a lot of the people in this hospice had never heard their own words spoken back to them or sang back to them or just they'd never heard themselves and they were crying and I suddenly realized there was like this huge I felt this huge responsibility to make sure I did it properly and did it well and and actually that it was such a it was like a real honor to hold these people's stories and relay them back to them it was such a beautiful thing and it just made me really think about how important it is to make your voice heard to to however you do that whether it's actually vocally or whether it's through something you make or whatever it is that you do but it's incredibly important for people to feel that somebody somewhere has heard their heart you know because it's no way to live there's no way to live not having your heart's voice heard Giles did you like to tell us your alarm story Think of all the places I go and, and thinking about all the things that I see. The thing that really alarms me is just how little there's talk about foreign policy in, in... I know this has been really serious, but the last four years, we in this country have been involved in uh, wars in, in Syria, we've been involved in wars in Libya, in Afghanistan and in Iraq. 
And I don't think it's just this country. It's all across the West. People just don't care. And yet, when did we stop caring about bombing other countries? So that's my, that genuinely alarms me. Do you think it's so caring or do you think it's the kind of overwhelming factor of there's so much going on and you try to, you know, in the, in the bit on the tube, you're reading your paper and you see, you know, well, this is happening there. It's so hard to take stock of it all. And then even to, you feel perilous because you don't know what to do about any of it either. You know, I, I'm a big believer in responsibility. I know a lot of people will say, what's happening, the bombing in Afghanistan has nothing to do with me. And... If they do feel there's something to do with them, they'll say, it's the government which has nothing to do with me. The fact is, I know, like, I've been in Afghanistan, and I know my tax dollars, you know, pounds, have paid towards those bombs. And the people that I voted for have been involved in that process. So we are all responsible. And if nothing, again, it's not about the rights and wrongs, but we're all responsible to be fully aware of that situation. And you're right, people say, oh, it's nothing really to do with me. It is. Those are British planes. The British pilots paid for by taxpayers here. What can they do? What do you think people can do? Because I know it is down to you can say, you know, this is the people you elect, but, but especially in this country where it's a first-past-the-post voting system, it's very hard to elect anybody other than yeah, but two parties. I mean, I know everyone says that, that elections, it's got nothing to do with me, but, you know, uh, politicians, I can't stand the politicians at the moment, but the reality is they work on a very simple method. You know, they, and this is what I hate about politics, but they are totally governed by pollsters, by people telling them what policies they should be talking about. Because they, they don't really stand for anything, but they stand for trying to win votes. But the reason pollsters do that is because they ask people, and people are not caring about these issues. Mm. You know, I, I still think it's like, I meet a lot of young people who say, but there's no point in me voting because, you know, my voice is not heard. The reason is because they sit there going, well, there's no point appealing to young people because they won't go out and vote. You know, I mean, it alarms me that anybody wouldn't stand and vote. I go to countries where people die every day to have the right to vote. And we have people that say, well, it doesn't really affect me. It does, and it affects people dying in other countries. In the documentary film you made recently for Channel 4, there was a guy who had lost both his legs in a rocket attack as well. Me, me, me and Ahmed, I mean, he was a really inspiring guy. He, he lost two legs in a rocket attack in Syria. He was a refugee in Lebanon, but had already, within months, he had no prosthetic limbs. He had none of the advantages that I had. But already his first concern was not his own suffering. It was about getting out and helping other people. So he converted this motorbike, um, it was a moped, and it had like little stabilising wheels and little gears and stuff so that he could do it all. Um, and of course, you know, I was jealous because I've never had one of those things. So, so he was on it and I was like, you know, can I have a go? And so I got in the back and I was like, you know, two men, one bike, no legs. What could go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> If you think of the plight of those refugees, especially there in Lebanon, they're living beside a concrete factory. And they've come from, you know, one of them was a manager of a factory where he'd been. So it's not like they've even, not that it's any better, but it's not like they've grown up like that and that's mm -hmm. what they've always known. They have known a much better life and now they're living in awful conditions. And then the, the subsect of that, there's a minority within that minority who are people who have disabilities. As one in five Syrians have disabilities and they're living in these conditions. Is, did you have the input? Did you see that and then say, I have to make a film about this? Yeah, I mean, my, my, my stuff is always about people affected by conflict. And within the people affected, then it's often the minorities that go unhelped. I mean, in Gaza, I was just doing a story on people with learning difficulties. Because people forget, you know, that, that within an area that's being bombed, there's people with autism, people with Down syndrome, people that can't actually comprehend what is going on around them. I, I was a carer myself for an amazing young man called Nick with autism. And I remember thinking to myself, 
how the hell would he cope if, if his house was bombed and he saw his family killed in front of him? But that's the reality for a lot of people in these circumstances. And it's those minorities that are often forgotten about. You know, when people talk about Syrian refugees, another situation, you know, people always have visions of, of extremists, have visions of ISIS, they talk about that. You know, that's such a small minority of people. You know, the majority of people who are affected by conflict are the poor, are children, and women. And within that group, often people with disabilities, both uh, physical and mental disabilities, are the ones that are forgotten. And so for me, those are the stories that are most important to tell. And what you were saying about people having their voice heard, you know, one of the things that really moves me, I'm just like a little mirror. I just take stories and I, I reflect them on so that people can hear them. But even that process I see empowers people. For people just to have somebody come and they see me and they see that it's not necessarily the easiest thing in the world for me to get to those places, but I get there because I want to hear them. And even that empowers them and makes them think somebody cares. Your Legacy of War project, can people still donate to that? Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's still, I'm, I'm doing this Legacy of War project, which is self-funded, which is looking at, at um, let's say, post-conflict countries, 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Without going on a lot about it, I get very passionate, and I'll ramble and ramble, but I'll do that down the pub later. But in Vietnam alone, 126,000 people have been injured since the war ended. So how can you say that war ended if people are still dying and people are still affected by it? So this project is looking at all that. But if you go to my website, yeah, you can find out about it there. Great. I do have a funny story at the end, I promise. <laughs> I promise. <laughs> so, um, yeah, this song, I thought it was alarming. It's really not. Um, it's called How Do You Feel Today? Sound of love has a ring of weariness. The night has a thousand eyes and a smile for heaviness. I've always asked for nothing, but you found it hard to see. So I gathered all I had and laid it down before your feet. I gathered all I had. So
People talk about this um, a thing called blood harmonies, that, that siblings always sing really well together, like McGarrigal sisters, or that it's just that you're on the same, you know, your, your vibrato blends, and you know, it's just, it's just a natural thing. Because you guys live together and, and spend so much time and sing so much together that you've kind of... Yeah, and it's, def it's definitely Harry and Alfie that really kind of inspired me to kind of sing harmonies. I didn't really care about harmonies before. I thought it was a clever thing that clever musicians did that I didn't have to do but now yeah I can suddenly do it since kind of hanging out with them a bit more so yeah, yeah. it's been fun it's uh, we spent like the last year like the last three years in London four years in London all sort of living together playing music together uh, I'll tell you what's experimenting alarming. something that's alarming is when you accidentally stumble across uh, some crazy harmonies like, oh yeah that's yeah. good I like that that's pretty that's good. <laughs> <laughs> that, that can pretty much shock you with a kind of uh, like a feeling of Goosebumps that is, mm. is really hard to explain, but if you're writing a song and, and you're just jamming, and then suddenly you hit this piece of gold. Uh, the song you guys wrote together. With Lisa, yeah. yeah. Those harmonies got me for, for the last time, for the first five notes. It's, it's usually the, like, the wrong note as well, yeah. is what makes a harmony. Dissonance yeah. is brilliant. Yeah, yeah, it just sends this alarming, shivering feeling up your spine, and it's like, <laughs> oh, but I love it. It's, but it's, <laughs> I love it. Yeah. <laughs> You sure you love it? I do. Yeah. <laughs> I do. <laughs> you guys did a lot of a lot of grafting on. I remember seeing you on Grafton Street in Dublin, yeah. particularly, and you really took to it with that. And with that, you know, people have probably seen have seen once the musical now as well. Yeah. You guys were the real deal when it came to that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that was just something we really, really enjoyed. I think at about sixteen, when we were kind of fifteen, and I was fifteen, Harry was sixteen. Uh, our, there was a recession in Ireland. Our mum st stopped giving us sort of pocket money and said, <laughs> oh, you can go out, uh, you're singing, you're putting stuff online, you can go out and just do it on the street, so go out and go busking, will you? So, uh, she didn't say it like that. Well, she didn't say it like that, yeah. Uh, so then we sort of, yeah, we just did that and we just really enjoyed it. We really enjoyed like a direct uh, response from people uh, just you know, do, going up, going about their day to day, doing their shopping and stuff like that. And if you can actually distract someone for, from their days, you know what they're doing. Then I, I think you're doing yeah. something right. You're doing something right. Yeah. Did you coin it in. Did you coin it. Um, well, we did pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah Harry, well. we had this we had this trick where uh, Harry used to jump on. Do you want to say a bit about it? It's another alarming thing, maybe, uh, for people walking down the streets in Dublin. Um, I used to do this thing. I still kind of do it sometimes. Uh, I was always quite athletic in school, and um, we decided to take busking to the next level and turn it. <laughs> just playing guitars and singing isn't enough to tr sometimes get people's attention. So my sort of circus trick was to jump on bins and bollards, um, so that I had a kind of a 12 foot high height. Have you seen this? It's shocking. Hide advantage. <laughs> and you can it's, hop on them with it, the guitar. I have actually seen people get a real fright when, 
when they see Alfie on the ground singing a song and then they're just walking by and then all of a sudden they don't realise that I'm like up there in their peripheral vision up to the, you know, really high, they can't see me and I just start singing suddenly a harmony and they get, they get real fright. And I also like to actually jump off the bin or the bollard to cut off a song quite dramatically. Um, uh, doing it anyway uh, and still like busking now we still do it our album came out like three weeks ago maybe and just for some reason we were left or not doing anything really not promoting it in any way you know it wasn't in our diary so we felt pretty bad about that we felt we should be doing it so we've never busked really in continental Europe before Germany France uh, so we decided to book interrail tickets and go out and, and busk in European cities to test ourselves to see if we could still survive off busking to see if we could still uh, maybe pay, you know, pay for a holiday, really, uh, with busking. So we did exactly that. We went to Paris, Amsterdam, Dusseldorf, Cologne, and, and Berlin and, and just tried to see if we could do it. And, yeah, we still absolutely love it, and I don't think we'll ever stop busking. I'd say the cashiers in the banks loved seeing you come oh, they had a, we went back to We went up, uh, back to home, back home to Dublin with it, and I uh, got stopped in the airport. She said, why are you travelling so many coins? <laughs> It's the best musical university, though. Like you can oh, tell, yeah. like our friend Mick Christopher was a busker, Glenn Hansard, um, and him used to used to busk a lot. And you could just tell uh, how people would deal with an audience if they had been a busker or not, because you you build up your your muscles, you know. Yeah, we want you a better yeah. phrase. Incidentally, our album's called "Singing for Strangers," and that's what we love to do. So, <laughs> when you then went to stand on a stage, how did that feel when you were singing to in, in that environment where people had actually come to actually see you, and you weren't trying Brilliant. to? Yeah, people were there for music this time, not for shopping. <laughs> <laughs> It all sort of comes down to songwriting. Like when initially when we started busking, we were playing covers. Uh, then we started playing our own songs. Nobody stopped. So uh, we said, okay, we're gonna have to write better songs. And then sort of, yeah, kept on writing songs, kept on trying them out in the street. Eventually, and I mean, our, maybe it must have sort of improved our songwriting in some way. Just getting a response and, and it's so yeah. immediate as well like yeah. you know straight away where a song that a song works or not yeah you know? exactly and none of our own songs were working at the time so yeah we sort of we were playing like popular songs I'd say from you know the 50s right until now and saying what do those songs have I mean obviously people know them they've been played on the radio but what do those songs have that our songs don't pretty much everything I suppose. <laughs> yeah. yeah so uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah what do you think about bongo players <laughs> Drums should never be in a circle. I, think, like, you know, I once walked through two bongo circles on two sides of the road. Guess what Irish town I was in? And go away for anyone not from Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> and it was literally like Gates of Hell stuff. That's yeah. how I imagine it's going to be, like competing uh, yeah. rhythms as well. <laughs> Alarming stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so will we move on to our final section? Funny story. Yes. So I was on holiday in Thailand, and um, I am a real lie on the beach with my book, soak up the sun kind of girl, you know what I mean? I like the sun in my skin. I just have really bad eczema, and the sun is like medicine to me in my skin. And uh, my husband and I, who is a Jamaican family, has locks right down to here. We just lay in the sun, read our books, get blacker and blacker and blacker and shinier and blacker. And, uh, and I just love it. It's like, oh, Velvet Jones, I love it. And um, 
<laughs> so we're lying on this beach, and it's like in Copangan. And you know, the, you know, you tie like little hearts, and you pay money, and whatever. There's a little central bar, a lovely family around this place. And every time we're out there, lying in the sun, getting blacker, these girls kept coming. <laughs> I was, it was kind of annoying, but anyway, running in and out, running in and out, looking at me and Garfield, that's my husband's name, running in and out, running in, and the end of the, I said, are you all right? <laughs> and uh, she said, where are you from? And I said, England. She was like, England? <laughs> really freaked out. And I said, yeah. And she went, where are your parents, where are your parents from? Uh, where are your parents? And I said, they're in England. And she went, oh, what happened to you? Why are you so black? <laughs> And I suddenly realised she thought my parents were white. <laughs> she, she was so freaked out. I was like, no, darling, darling. And she was really, like, freaked out right now. Anyway, that's my funny story. <laughs> what happened to you? You were saying that you think that black women have had the last laugh when it comes to... Oh, because of the arse. Absolutely. <laughs> because, well, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? <laughs> it's like, you know, my whole life, it's like, oh, you've got a big arse there, haven't you? Look at that arse, lots of arse going on. And now... It's all about the All about the arse, isn't it? Ha! <laughs> I say ha! That's all of you. Do you know what I mean? Because, you know, it's ridiculous, though, because basically somebody, someone's going to make you feel shit about who you are. We're back to shit again. But someone, someone's going to make you feel shit, whether it's your arse or you've got the wrong hair or you've got the wrong whatever. So just do it, feel it, have it, let it bounce or whatever, <laughs> whatever it is, whichever part we're talking about. But, you know, seriously, I, you know, I had a girl who would go, why does your skirt go up at the back like that? It's like, it's because of my arse, darling, <laughs> <laughs> Got one, it's there, you know, some of flat cardboard scenario. It's weird. I mean, what does that feel like in the bath? I've always wondered that when you see it. How does that feel? The it, doesn't bony it doesn't look like it feels good. It looks like it might hurt. Anyway, so yeah, the arse. Hooray for the arse. Giles. This is my kind of go-to pub story. It doesn't really start... It's not that funny at the beginning. <laughs> I got blown up in Afghanistan. Um, <laughs> see? <laughs> boom, boom. Um, no, so I, got, I got blown up in Afghanistan, and I, I, I was still conscious. Um, I could see my legs are gone. I thought I was going to die. And I got picked up by an American medivac helicopter. So these are guys from the 101st Airborne Special Troops. They come in this helicopter. It's all very exciting. They come pick you up. I felt like I was in, like, in Apocalypse Now. There's lots of flares going off everywhere. And I went back in this helicopter, and CJ and Phil were the two medics that were, were dealing with me on this 20-minute journey. And it's hard to explain, but you built up a real intimacy with these people. I thought they were the last people I would see. I thought they'd be the last moments of my life. You're talking to them, and they're, they're trying to save you, and you're chatting away. And, and it's weird how you talk about quite normal things, and you're yeah, just focusing on, on what happens. And actually, when we landed at, at Kandahar, um, they didn't know who I was. They thought I might be... Uh, I don't know, special forces, because I was with American soldiers. They couldn't really work it out. And I thanked them. And they're like, who the fuck thanks people after like that? And I was like, well, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> I was just like, well, you know, that's how we do it at home. We're very polite. Um, but anyway, so we built up a friendship. Um, so months later, when I was coming out of hospital, they, they found me under the wonders of Facebook. And, and I hadn't realised, like, obviously, to me, these guys had saved my life. But I hadn't realised, to them, my life was really significant, because most people had died. And... 
a couple of them have suffered really badly from PTSD and, and they always keep saying that my story is what keeps them going and makes them think it was worthwhile being there and, and going through all the horrors that they saw. So anyway, that's not the funny bit. <laughs> 18 months later, after I was injured, it was the first time I went to meet them. And I went to Chicago to, to meet up. And, and I say politically, um, all sorts of different reasons, we're very different, but we have this kind of bond. So I was going to meet them at this bar, and I was really nervous. I suddenly was like, why am I so nervous? It felt like some sort of blind date. Or, and, you know, and obviously, like anything like that, you turn to alcohol. So I was there, I was drinking some whiskeys in my hotel room. Finally, I go to this bar to meet them. It was lots of like man hugs and tears and, and, and more whiskey and more hugs and more tears and then tequila shots and more hugs, more tears. <laughs> I kind of like, you can see where this was going. And then we look at it about midday, you know, you think, this is going to be a long day. <laughs> and so we just, we just carry on in this great, proper sleazy downtown Chicago bar and we're just getting really hammered. Um, to the point when, you know, we're not really focusing on anything. And you do. I think what most people do in that situation when you're that drunk, you go to a tattoo parlour. <laughs> it was the obvious call, right? And, and they'd already said before they wanted the date um, when they rescued me, so we'd all have this date, because it meant so much to them. I'm like, I don't really need a visual reminder of that date. <laughs> but, you know, for them it kind of meant something, so I'm like, OK, let's go and do it. So we walk into this tattoo parlour, um, I'm probably walking better than these two guys, but these big guys, 101st Airborne, you know, they're pretty tough guys. So we're sort of staggering in. The tattooist is looking a bit nervous, you know, and we just go, we want dates. Um, we couldn't even remember what dates we wanted, really. And we're, we're there going, what date was it? And anyway, so we're sort of figuring this out. Now, this tattoo parlor has office chairs, you know, chairs with little wheels. Chairs with wheels are like kryptonite to legless people. They are our nemesis. They are like my greatest fear in the world. You know, forget going to Gaza, forget going to Afghanistan. It's chairs with wheels I'm scared of. <laughs> so I'm there and, and, I'm like, and I'm drunk and I'm trying to sit in this chair and obviously it, it scoots that way, I go that way. I'm trying to get back up on it. Um, my leg comes off. Um, I'm pushing it, my other leg comes off. The guys are just standing there laughing their heads off. They think this is the funniest thing. And you know, and who wouldn't think it funny, a disabled person struggling, you know? <laughs> But no, so I'm, I'm on the ground with no legs, trying to push and get up on this chair, pushing it around. And a woman walks by. Now, bearing in mind, this is downtown Chicago, so it's a big glass-fronted tattoo parlor. She just walks by, and you can see her kind of go... <laughs> and walk back again. And all she can see is a guy with no legs, pushing a chair around, with two big guys laughing their heads off. <laughs> so she kind of storms in, and she looks at them, and she just says, look, this man evidently needs help. And I swear, without batting an eyelid, they just looked at her and they said, Ma'am, we helped him once, we're not helping him again. <laughs> Sharon. <That was> great. <laughs> <laughs> So this is a story of, of laughter, and it's to actually alarm you. <laughs> when I was 18, so this is prior to the whole not getting into drama studies in Trinity College and the whole rejection and failure thing and blah. But um, it, it is kind of the reason why I thought someone was going to walk up to me for years and tap me on the shoulder and say, you know, I'm going to um, make it happen for you. So this story is the beginning of my demise. 
And just, just before, you know, my rebirth. I was in art college in Dublin and an old pal from my school, who was in a better art college, asked me if I wanted to be in her new uh, boyfriend's uh, new band. And I was like, um, I don't play any instruments. You should know that. You were in school with me for five years. <laughs> and uh, she said, no, I want you to be um, a backing dancer. <laughs> and I was like, I can't dance. You know, you should know that. And, uh, and maybe I could be the backing singer. And uh, she said, no, no I, I'm, I'm the backing singer. And I said, you didn't even make it into the fucking choir in school. And by the way, everyone made it into the choir in my school. It was a common school. There were nuns dying all the time. They needed a really good rotation of singers, so you didn't miss too many classes. So if you weren't in the choir, you couldn't fucking sing. She's, she's like, no, it doesn't matter because, you know, it's kind of a punk band. My new boyfriend was uh, in the Virgin Prunes. And I was like, what? Gavin Friday? And she's like, no, he was the drummer in the Virgin Prunes. <laughs> so I said, so, so the singer in this band is a drummer. You're the backing singer. You didn't even get into the choir. And I'm going to be the backing dancer and I can't dance. And she said, yeah. And I was like, I'm in. <laughs> so... Um, we did a few um, gigs around Dublin, and we did one in my hometown of Drogheda, which was mortifying, and we ended up getting on <laughs> a really bad show on RTE called Joe Maxi. My and mom was a presenter on Joe Maxi. Really? Yeah. Well, I was just... I mean, it was... I was 18, I was on the telly, dancing. Yes. It was like... My mum is going to hear this, and she's going to be like, <laughs> it was a really good show. It what? was, was it? I don't know, no, but... what I do remember yeah. is they had a couch made of sweets. Do you remember that? I... No. Well, sorry, you were too busy dancing. I was too busy dancing, and... But... Like, 18 on the telly, dancing. I thought I was the shit. I thought this is the best. I mean, people were coming up to my parents and going, we saw Sharon dancing on Joe Maxi. And um, it was the best thing that could have happened to me. So this went on for a while. And after one gig in Dublin, <laughs> this foreign guy came up to me and said, my name is... I'm not going to tell you his name, because this story gets quite bad. So, um, <laughs> so he said, my name is um, Claude, and uh, I'm, a, I'm a manager, and I, I'd like to manage you. And I was like, brilliant. Um, what, manage me in what? To do what? Because, I mean, I really can't stress what a bad dancer I am. So he wouldn't have been wanting to manage my dancing. So he said, you know, I just... I mean, this is embarrassing. He was like, you know, I think you're a star. I, I want to I manage you. Um, I look after this person. And I'm not going to tell you who he looked after because you might put two and two together because this story does get worse. And, um, but he said, here's my card. I live in Switzerland. Come to Zurich. Come, come and spend a week in Zurich. And, you know, we'll, we'll figure, out, figure out where to take it from there. So I tell my boyfriend, pack your bags. <laughs> We're going to Zurich. And I told my parents what was happening. They were like, that's not fucking happening. <laughs> and I was like, what are you... This is an amazing opportunity. So they, they, they talked about it and they decided that instead of taking my uh, boyfriend, I could take my mother. <laughs> and I was like, that is a horrible idea. I'm 18. I don't need your permission. I was just being polite asking anyway. But for their peace of mind... I took my older sister <laughs> instead. And uh, so anyway, we went, to, we went to Zurich and he turned up in his flash car and he picked us up and he took us to his flash house and he, he wined us and dined us. And one morning I woke up and he was kneeling by my bed <laughs> um, in my bedroom, stroking my face. And I was like, mm, no, that's fine. So, uh, <laughs> uh, so he... he, he so then he got a photographer and he got, you know, uh, makeup people and wardrobe. There's like racks of clothes. I was 18, I was, you know. And uh, 
And um, he got me to draw for a while. Um, maybe he could manage my drawing. And, uh, <laughs> and he, he said, you know, we'll take you to a recording studio to write some lyrics. And, um, and he was like, I'll, I'll, I'll film you. You know, we can make a show reel. It was fucking nuts, but brilliant. So then um, the night before we were about to leave, he was like, I'm going to set up a camera. <laughs> set up a camera to capture, you <laughs> to capture you on camera to, you know, see how natural you are. It's not as bad as that. Don't look at me like that. <laughs> to, see, like to see how uh, natural you are on film. So my sister and I, we were having a great time. We were a bit pissed. And... You know, we might have been maybe smoking a little bit of a joint. So he um, was filming us and we didn't think anything about it until the next morning when we were supposed to leave and we couldn't find our passports oh. anywhere. Our, our, our passports <laughs> were, were missing. So my older sister, who's a more cautious person than me and was in charge of me, decided that he was, uh, was going to try and blackmail us into staying by using the tape that he'd filmed the night before of me pissed and maybe smoking a bit of a joint, I can't remember. And so when he went out, we ransacked his house, uh, we found his camera, we took the tape, and when he came back, we, we you know, had the big panic about the passports, and the passports miraculously uh, turned up. So that was the end of it. We, we stole his property. We got on a plane and, uh, you know, I had my goodbye with him and we made plans for future managing. And, uh, <laughs> and that's kind of the end of the story because um, obviously when you steal someone's property after a week of them giving you an all-expenses-paid uh, good time, uh, they don't call you back. <laughs> so, I think, hang on, I've got a moral. Uh, yeah, so anyway, the moral of the story is that there is no moral, but it was from that point that I decided that this kind of thing was going to happen to me all the time, that someone was just going to tap me on the shoulder and Strike say, hey, I'm going to make you a star, so fuck him, he ruined my life for ages. <laughs> Did, and you were you weren't saying his name, which is which is good for all sorts of libel reasons. But did he go on to did he go on he, to have he, a successful he, managing he career? He managed a couple of famous people. When I mean, I looked at I mean, I, I don't know. Couldn't I looked up online because I don't. They didn't have computers then. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, he did. He managed a couple of. I mean, he had a business. He was. I don't understand like what happened. It was all very weird, but. It was what, funny. What were you drawing? What were your... <laughs> I was just... <laughs> Faces. <laughs> My mum always told me to uh, reject an offer if somebody invited you somewhere to come and see their etchings. She was like, don't go, don't go to a second location to see someone's etchings. It's a bad idea. That's quite a Victorian warning, isn't it? <laughs> 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 it doesn't happen that often. <laughs> It has not come up very often in my life, you're right. We were uh, just doing the interrailing experience there recently. We arrived in... When we were doing the interrailing experience there <laughs> recently, we arrived in Paris and we didn't have our ticket for getting from Paris to Amsterdam. We went up and tried to get tickets and they had only got second-class tickets remaining uh, as opposed to the ones that are discounted for interrailing. Anyway, so they're 90 euro. We were like... Ah, shite, we'll have to go bus and make that at least that amount of money to get to Amsterdam that night where we were staying. 
went busking. We made enough, actually, which was really cool. Um, went back, and by the time we got back a few hours later, the second-class tickets were sold out, so there was only first-class tickets, which are 200 euro each. Um, we were both visibly panicked, myself and Alfie, and we were, you know, like, arguing with each other, like, oh, what the hell are we going to do? We don't know where to stay. Like, Paris feels kind of dodgy. Like, I don't know, Amsterdam's probably less dodgy. Uh, <laughs> and this guy just came up to us, kind of, he obviously saw we were visibly distressed and he was looking, he was looking for two visibly distressed Irish people. And, and he said, you want to go to Amsterdam? I give, uh, I give you lift, uh, 50 euro. We were like, hmm, bit dodgy, man. I don't know. Like, we both looked at each other, kind of, this is a bit of a weird situation. And anyway, after contemplating it for about five minutes, we were like, hmm. So we went and found the guy. Uh, his name was Marco, which if anyone's seen the film Taken, uh, is make... Uh, <laughs> Uh, is this Marco from Trapoya? It's that guy, like, he, had, he was like a rude boy. He had, you know, big sunglasses on. I hope he never hears this. Um, he was a nice guy. He's just kind of a little bit dodgy looking. And uh, anyway, we, we ended in the car with him. Ended up, he was really into hip-hop, so he was like blasting hip-hop tunes. He was going about 180 kilometers an hour uh, the whole time. And he actually asked us, uh, I go faster. Uh, you give me 10 euro, I go faster. <laughs> <laughs> and we were like, uh, yeah, we'll give you tenor, and you can, or you can, we can take back a tenor, and you can go way slower. <laughs> this is quite intense. And there was another guy in the car with us, luckily, who spoke uh, really fluent English and really fluent French, because the driver guy, he didn't really speak very good English. It was quite uncomfortable every time he was speaking to us, because you really couldn't understand him. But the Dutch guy was getting dropped in Rotterdam, and we were obviously getting dropped in Amsterdam. So we were coming up to Rotterdam, and uh, the driver said, OK, uh, we drop off Peter and then I need to go to coffee shop to buy some weed and then smoke a joint, and then I kill my wife. <laughs> and we were like, what? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Horrible story. Lads, yeah. wrong section for the story. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. This is amazing. Um, you know. <laughs> I don't know how I felt anyway about him. First of all, already having driven like 180 kilometers an hour to then get stoned and still have to drive 40 minutes to Amsterdam. He did, he went and smoked a joint, sure enough, like, and then he got in the car and he's like, okay, now I kill my wife. We were like, no man, you don't have to do this. <laughs> then, yeah, you, know, you don't have to do this, you don't have to do this. So our brother's looking around the like, what are we gonna do, man? We need to get out of this, you know, what are we gonna, where's his wife, you know? <laughs> our, our guitars are in the booth, there's no way she's in there, you know? Uh, <laughs> and then, sure enough, puts out a spliff, Calls his wife. Oh. Not kills his wife. <laughs> what song are you going to play now? Uh, <laughs> sorry. Uh, sorry. Uh, we have a friend, a very good friend of ours, has been a friend for. Uh, six, seven years or something like that, he inspired us to uh, start writing songs. Yeah. One day we met him down in the park playing a few songs under a tree, and he, he's probably like the next you know, great Irish poet, I would say. And we wrote this song with him. I suppose the funny side of this story is, he's, he was an accountant, <laughs> as of recent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I never knew accountants had so much soul, but this guy, uh, he's got it. There's a little sing-along bit. It's very easy. And it goes like this, right? 
don't know why and I don't know when. I need you now like I needed you then. I don't know why and I don't know when. I need you now like I needed you then. Beautiful. Happy days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you all have to sing as well, by the way. I was going to ask Damo to turn my mic off lest I ruin your recording. Damon, <laughs> oh, you can walk around, man. You got one of these mics. I want to go home. I want to get out. Come out from under my shadow. But I'm not allowed. I wanna forgive I wanna forget Say goodbye to my comfort I don't know why and I don't know when I need you now like I needed you then I wanna be young Don't wanna grow old I think too much of my future And break the mood Dreaming of sin and where to begin. I'll be like this forever. I don't know why and I don't know when. I need you now like I needed you then. I don't know why and I don't know when. I need you now like I needed you then. Now 
thank you so much for listening. Thanks to everyone here for coming to Sutton House. If you'd like to donate so that we can help us make more podcasts, you can do so at soundingspod.com. You can subscribe to iTunes as well. And we're on Facebook and Twitter if you want to let us know what you think. And thanks so much to Sutton House and the National Trust for hosting us here as well. And finally, thank you to our guests, to Sharon Horgan, to Andy Oliver, to Giles Dooley, to Hudson Taylor and to Gabrielle Applin. <laughs> <laughs>